I was out of town last week, so I'm not sure if Pastor let everybody know that he was going to be at National Religious Broadcasters Convention this week. So that's why he's not here tonight. He's actually in Nashville, Tennessee at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. Because, of course, he's, he has his radio program, and that is the annual convention for all religious broadcasters around the country. Great networking event, all that. So he, uh, he decided to drive this year. So he and Cindy were in Little Rock yesterday, and they pulled into Nashville today to spend the rest of the week there in Nashville. So pray for them. Uh, pray that the Lord would make that trip fruitful and that we would continue to expand the, the ministry of Turning Point Church through the radio, through the internet, all that stuff. Because, man, I cannot tell you how many people write us from different states and even from different countries telling us how hard it is to find a church that preaches the word. I know here, you know, if you've been here for a long time, you're like, wow, that's, is, is it really that hard? It really is that hard, unfortunately. So our ministry through the radio, through the internet, through all that medium is really blessing a lot of people because there is a famine of the word of God in the land. And we want to be a part of addressing that famine. So that's why Pastor is there this week. So tonight, you're stuck with me. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I want to talk about tonight is, and I'm calling this a, 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 an aspect of reflection or response. You know, as Christians, we are called to be a response to the culture, not a reflection of the culture. And too often, we're a reflection of the culture. If you look at Barna's studies that have been going on for decades, they've been consistent for a long time, that unfortunately, the church, the Christian culture is more a reflection of the culture rather than a response to the culture. If you spend like five minutes on Facebook, you'll, you'll notice that unfortunately we're more a reflection of the culture. Well, in that context, you know, there's just a lot of stuff that's going on. We've been through a lot in these last three or four years. Uh, of course, you know, the apocalypse happened a couple of years ago, and we're still in the middle of that. Now we are literally seeing war in Europe. We have a whole generation right now that has never experienced war. Never experienced war. And it's shaking a lot of people. It really is. And, and I've talked to, to a lot of folks who are really struggling with this. And the prospect of this going beyond what it, where it is and what's happening and the real threat that this could expand, you know, to World War III. And unfortunately, a lot of people are reflecting the response of the culture in this as well, rather than being a response to the culture. And really, since March of 2020, we've entered a whole new world. For several months, and even maybe the first year, we kind of had this thought, oh, eventually this will go away and we'll go back to normal, whatever normal is. Well, whatever normal was, it's gone. We are never going back. This is a whole new world. So with that in mind, now what? Now what do we do? 
How do we respond to this new world? How do we respond to living in the apocalypse? How do we respond to a world that is now entering a new war phase? And it's just beginning. I want to read a couple passages out of Matthew. These are going to be very familiar passages. But I want to take a couple different perspectives on this that are not the traditional route that we would go when we talk about these passages in the context of how can we respond to the culture rather than be a reflection of the culture. So we'll begin in Matthew 24, verses 3 through 8. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, now this is Jesus with his disciples. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So I think a lot of people probably have that thought on their minds. Is this it? I mean, are we really at the end? Is this the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, and he said this. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these things are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Of course, bringing in the metaphor of, of birth, pain comes before the actual birth. So here's Jesus telling his disciples, there's going to be all kinds of chaos going on. Wars and rumors of wars. Well, not only do we have rumors, we have war taking place. But the Lord said, do not be alarmed. And unfortunately, I think sometimes in the church, we reflect the culture by allowing fear to overcome us rather than our faith in Christ. And we have to be careful because right now, in this season, the hotter it gets, the more there's a need for hope the more there is a need for that peace that transcends all understanding. The more there is a need for a response, not a reflection. There are people everywhere right now looking for hope. They're realizing that the world that they used to live in is no more. And not only is it no more, it's not getting any better. And it's on this downward slide. I think sometimes, you know, when we think about the end times, we think, yeah, you know, things are going to get worse. And I don't think we do it intentionally, but we sometimes slip into this victim mentality that, oh, it's going to get worse. It's going to get hard. Oh, my gosh, I wish Jesus would just come back today because I don't want to go through it. But we're not called to be victims. We're called to be victors. Jesus said all this stuff was going to happen, but he said, don't be alarmed. He also said, in another place, he said, fear not, for I have overcome the world. 
we have to be careful that we don't allow the world to overcome us. That we don't allow the fear, the news, social media, whatever, to overcome us. Because the last word in all of this is not CNN or Fox or Facebook or TikTok or any of that. It's Jesus. Jesus has the final word. Does it mean it's going to be easy? No, it is not going to be easy. And nobody ever said it would be. I think sometimes here in the West, in the Western context, especially here in America, a lot of us grew up in a season of prosperity and wealth and comfort. And in that season, we equated comfort with Christianity. You know, back in 16 and 20, you know, we had these really contentious elections, and there was this big prayer movement. One thing that really concerned me during those seasons was, are we praying because we want the kingdom of God to be manifest? Are we praying because we really want God's will, or are we praying that we just want to be comfortable again? Because we want to go back to normal, whatever normal was. Jesus never promised it would be comfortable. In fact, God's not interested in our comfort. He's actually more interested in our character. And character cannot be forged in our comfort zone. You know, one of the the coaches at the gym I go to is constantly pushing us out of our comfort zone but you, because you cannot develop endurance and physical fitness in your comfort zone. Well, you cannot grow your character in Christ in a comfort zone. You have to get out of that comfort zone. And the reason I go to a gym with a coach <laughs> is because I don't usually get out of my own comfort zone. I need somebody to push me out of that comfort zone. Well, in the Christian life, that's the Holy Spirit. He's constantly, get out. Get out of there. Get out there. Pushing us beyond our limits, our perceived limits. Many of you know I, I used to be a Fort Worth police officer. And I remember going through the academy. Whew, boy, was that an, an outside my comfort zone. Honestly, I didn't think I was going to make it because when I went into the academy, I was not very physically fit. That was not a big thing for me at that season in my life. And they didn't seem to care about that. They said, well, you want to be a cop. Here's the standards. And I was way off of the standard because I remember when we first started, I, first of all, I barely made it in based on the physical fitness standard. And in the academy back then, every day, we had to be on the training deck at 6.30 a.m., ready to go and do PT every day, five days a week. And part of that was running. I was not a runner at all, let alone at 6.30 in the morning. I didn't know there was a 6.30 in the morning. I knew there was a 6.30 p.m. I don't know about the a.m. part because I had to get up at 4.30 a.m., which I didn't know there was one of those either, for six months. Running on the trail, and, man, I barely kept up. And each week, we would increase the speed and increase the distance. 
I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with where we were, let alone where they were going. And about end of week two, the PT instructor took a group of us aside. He, I mean, it was obvious to him, these guys are really struggling. And I remember he pulled us aside and he said, hey, look, I, I recognize that you're struggling. But your struggle is not with your body. Your body can adjust to anything. He said, that's not the problem. The problem is right here. You're not, your mind is not allowing your body to adjust because you're setting your limits up here, not in your body. And I went, mm, yeah, I don't know about that. My legs are pretty screaming at me by the time we get done. I think my body is pretty, pretty convinced we're done. And he said, it's your mind. If you will let your mind allow your body to reach its potential, you'll go way beyond the limit you're putting up here. I don't know about this stuff. But I wasn't going to quit. So you can fire me, you can kick me out, but I'm not quitting. Well, sure enough, he was right. Because 12 weeks later, I was way beyond where I thought I could ever be. And today I'm way beyond where I was back then. And I've never forgotten that lesson. Because I think the same thing goes in life. We put limits on ourselves up here. And when chaos occurs in our lives or around us, like it is right now, with COVID, with the war in Europe, it pokes at that lie that we believe about ourselves that we're not good enough. I can't do it. I'm not going to make it. And that is a lie of the enemy. And the Holy Spirit's going, nope, you can do it. Come on, keep going. Go! I'm like, no, I can't, you know, and we're fighting our own minds. And this is where we end up being a reflection of the culture, because everybody, to one degree or another, believes that they're not good enough. That is the greatest lie that we all believe. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable enough. Uh, God doesn't love me. I'm not worthy. Whatever flavor of that lie you want to put in there, we all believe that to one degree or another. And that is a character issue. And God wants to push us past that limit. And we have to go past that limit if we're going to be salt and light. Because salt and light is an aspect of victory, not victimhood. I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, is the core of being a victim. We have to get over that. We have to get past that. And that's what I want to get into tonight is how does God get past that? How do we go beyond that? Before we do that, I want to look at another part of Matthew 24, verses 45 through 47. Because in the aspect of the end times, which we are in, in the aspect of thinking about the end times, again, we tend to slip into this victim mentality of, man, we just got to hunker down in the bunker until Jesus comes back. <laughs> just survive. Hold on. But I love this passage at the end of this section in Matthew where Jesus is talking about all the stuff that's going to happen before his return. And then he says this, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master is set over his household? In other words, who is the faithful one in the midst of all this? Who is the one who is faithful? Who is the one who is faithful to set over his household, to give them the food at their proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Here's what Jesus is saying. 
The faithful servant, the faithful Christian, is the one who is out doing and fulfilling their purpose in the midst of all the chaos. And when Jesus comes back, he finds them in the middle of their destiny, doing what they're supposed to be doing, not hiding in the corner somewhere. And they're so busy. There's another passage where Jesus come, it talks about the master showing up and them not realizing uh, it's that time. You know, at a time when you don't realize, like the thief in the night, we're so busy doing what Jesus has called us to do that all of a sudden Jesus shows up and goes, where'd you come from? We were so busy about your work, we didn't realize you'd showed up. That's what Jesus is looking for. That is a victorious Christian. That is a victorious church. It's not one sitting around going, "Woo, man, come on back, Jesus. Man, ay, 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 ay. I can't handle five more minutes of this. Jesus is looking for a wise and faithful servant who is fully surrendered to what he has called them to do and is so busy doing that work that Jesus shows up right behind him and just watches. Wow, this is really cool. Look at my servant. (laughs) They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's what he's looking for. But how do we get there? How do we get to a point where we're so busy doing the work of the kingdom, we're not affected by the work of the world or the issues of the world? That doesn't mean we're not engaged with the world. That's not what I mean. What I mean is we're not negatively influenced to where we're paralyzed by fear. That's what I mean. And all these opportunities that are present in this chaos are opportunities to advance the kingdom. Opportunities to bring Jesus into the middle of chaos. God is the one who brings order out of chaos, hope out of despair, and he has put that in us to do the exact same thing. We are to be the ones to go into these areas of the world where there's no hope and bring hope. We are to be the ones who go into the areas of the world that are experiencing injustice and unrighteousness and bring it in. Bring back that peace that is missing in this world. As agents of the kingdom, that's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. But if we are not walking in the identity we've been given then we act like a victim. And then we act like the world. Because the world is a victim. The world is a victim to circumstances. The world is a victim to the schemes and, and plans of the enemy. As Christians, we of all people have no reason whatsoever to ever be victims again. Because the gospel is not about going to heaven one day. The gospel is about a brand new identity that God has given you today. The gospel is not for tomorrow, it's for today. Yes, we go to heaven one day. That's not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to reestablish the the relationship God intended to have with us when he first wanted to create us in order for us to become who he called us to become in the first place. That's what the gospel is all about. It's not about going to heaven one day. Do we go to heaven one day? Yeah. Yeah. But that's not the goal. The goal is to become who we were created to become. 
And when we become who God created us to become, we will just naturally do what we were created to do. The doing is a byproduct of the becoming. It's not the other way around. You cannot do yourself into becoming a new person. Transformation in the kingdom is inside out, not outside in. Christianity is not a behavioral modification program. It's a life transformation process that works from the inside out. If you've got stuff in your life, behaviors, habits, attitudes that need to change, you don't change by trying to change those attitudes. You change those attitudes by allowing Jesus to change you from the inside out. And that's what I want to talk about here in the last few minutes is what is the transformation process? How does God transform us? And how does that set us up to be a reflection rather than a response, to be a response rather than a reflection? Now, if you've seen this before, you know where I'm going. The staff here jokes all the time, ask me if, if I'm always going to do circles. I'm always going to do circles, sorry. If you've seen this before, you know where I'm going. So I won't go in circles, but I will draw circles. Okay. I want to start with the basics of the gospel. And the reason I start here is because I think in the church, we've forgotten what the full gospel means. I understand we go to heaven one day. But there's so much more to the gospel today than just tomorrow. Okay? All of us have three parts. We have a body, a soul, and the spirit. Now, when we're born, if you're born on earth, anybody not born on earth? All right, then it covers all of us. If you're born on earth, we're born with a spiritually genetic disease called sin, right? And it's at our core. And we all have it. Now, when I talk about the soul, what I'm talking about is the mind, the will, and the emotions, okay? That makes up you. It's your personality, those type of things, okay? Sin infects the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. And this is why we end up doing these dumb things that we do. Usually, this is what we call sin, the action, whatever that action is. You know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. This is what we tend to focus on when we talk about sin. But the real root of sin is down here. It's in our soul. It's infected the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. That's why we have distortions in our understanding this is the real root of sin here, not this. That's why getting rid of the action doesn't change the, the issue. You can get rid of this for a season, but if you don't deal with this, guess what's coming back? This. Now, before you become a Christian, we're a slave to sin, as the Bible says, because we have this sin core, and it's constantly feeding the soul, which leads to that. We have no hope. We're slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. Now let's talk about the gospel for a minute. There's a radical transformation that takes place in the gospel that is so much bigger than just going to heaven one day. In the gospel, there is a transformation that occurs at our very core. Now, we still have the three circles. 
Okay? Body, soul, and spirit. Mind, will, and emotions. Now, here's the thing about the gospel. Uh, Theologians call the gospel the great exchange. The reason they call it the great exchange is because Jesus takes that sin core out and exchanges it with his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we say yes to Jesus, we're saying yes, take that sin core out and I receive that righteousness that you provide for me. So in salvation, it's not just I am forgiven, I'm also made righteous. I'm made whole and complete in his sight. That's why when God looks at us, he no longer sees a sinner, he sees a righteous son or daughter of God. Because at the core, I'm going to just put big R for righteous. The Holy Spirit moves in and brings our spirit alive for the very first time. Prior to salvation, we are dead in Christ. We are dead without Christ. We are dead in sin. Now we are brought alive for the very first time. Salvation is not an intellectual epiphany. It is a spiritual resurrection from the dead. It is the greatest miracle on the planet You can have somebody come up here and be healed of cancer, they're still going to die. Not speaking that over, but you know what I mean. You're resurrected from the dead in the spirit, you're never going to die. He who lives in me shall never die. That doesn't mean physically, that means eternally. Separated from God. This is the greatest miracle on the planet. I know we love to see people physically healed. And we believe in that. And it's awesome. But there's nothing in comparison to a spiritual resurrection from the dead. That is the power of the gospel. And I think we minimize that sometimes. We don't realize the power that takes place in the gospel. And the power that is in you. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead resides in you. That same power is there. Now, as a Christian, our spirit is brought alive. It's made righteous and whole and complete in his sight. However, we've still got this issue in the soul. You know, if I uh, go shake somebody's hand and they've, you know, I used to use the uh, illustration. If, If I shake somebody's hand and they have the flu, well, you know, something bigger than the flu now. So I shake somebody's hand and they've got COVID and I touch my eye and I affect my body. I can go wash my hands and I get rid of the infection, but I still have to deal with the infection. Jesus removes the source of the infection, but we still have to deal with this infection here. This is why as a Christian, you can still sin. Because you believe the old lie. This is that aspect of the old nature. Or the flesh as it's sometimes called. In Romans 7, Paul says, I know what I want to do. But I just can't seem to do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do. And that I keep keep doing. Anybody uh, walking in Romans 7 maybe? (laughs) I know I do. I'm like, what? Oh, I did it again. And... You know, for a long time as a Christian, for me, my focus was here. How do I get rid of this? 
And I think for a lot of Christians, the goal is, I gotta get rid of this thing. If I can get rid of this thing, my life will be fine. But here's the problem. Righteousness is not the absence of sin. It's the presence of Jesus. We can stop the action. If we don't have the presence, it's not going to do us any good. The thing that stops this is not our willpower. Willpower has no power over sin. Only Jesus has power over sin. And in the Christian life, the only way we overcome sin is through Jesus, not our own efforts. What we need is self-control, not willpower. But self-control is not an act of the will. It's a fruit of the Spirit. You don't gain more self-control through trying harder. You gain more self-control by getting closer to Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you abide in Jesus, the more fruit is born in your life. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Part of that fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is the self-control. If you abide in me, I and you, you will bear much fruit. The more fruit you bear, the more self-control you have, and the more this just goes away. Because self-control doesn't just deal with this, it deals with this the root. When you go after the root, you get the fruit. If I go to Lowe's and I buy a tree that says it's an apple tree and I go plant it in my backyard and it starts popping out oranges, <laughs> I can go, well, man, I know this is an apple tree. I'll just cut those oranges off and hope it comes up apples next time. Oranges, dang it. I'll paint them red and just call them apples. Or I'll knock them off or I'll hang apples. That's how we tend to approach Christianity is we focus on this end. The only way that this tree is going to become an apple tree is if I uproot it and replace it with an apple tree. I cannot make an apple tree out of an orange tree. We cannot stop sin unless we get rid of the root. And I don't have power over sin in my life. I cannot change this through willpower. I have to have this transformed by Jesus. And as a Christian, one of the greatest things we, we misunderstand in this transformation process is the power of the Word of God. You know, Pastor says all the time, you've got to be in the Word. You've got to be in the Word. You've got to be in the Word. Why? It's not just some religious thing to do. It's not a checkbox on your religious checklist. I read the word. Boom. Okay, good. Why do you need to be in the word? Here's why. Hebrews 4.12 says this. For the word of God is living and active. The word of God is spiritually alive, so to speak. What we're dealing with here is what I call sin sickness. This sickness right here. If I've got COVID, if I've got pneumonia, if I've got the flu, whatever. If I've got pneumonia, that's the one I usually use. I can drink all the chicken soup I want. That sucker ain't going nowhere. I need to get some medication. So I go to the doctor. The doctor gives me a prescription. I go to the pharmacy. I come home. I've got this little pill bottle that has these pills in it. And these pills are chemically alive, so to speak. 
and I take those pills, and they do in me what I cannot do in myself, and that's bring healing to my lungs. Now, I have no clue how this pill works. I do not have a degree in organic chemistry. I'm not a molecular biologist. I have no clue how it works. But that doesn't mean it still doesn't work. Here's the thing. These little X's are spiritual, is a spiritual sickness, not a physical one. Now, I wish I could just roll out a whole bunch of boxes of pills right now and say, take this pill and your sin will go away. I'd be a multi-bazillionaire living on my own island. But I can't do that because a chemically alive pill has no power over a spiritually alive sickness. The only thing that overcomes something that's spiritually alive is something else that's spiritually alive. That just happens to be the Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active. The only thing that has power over this sin sickness is the Word of God. This is why you need to be in the Word consistently over time. Consistently over time. Ideally, daily. And if it's not daily, then consistently. I used to say daily, and people said, well, you know, I missed a day, so it's over. No! Just be consistent. If I miss a day at the gym, doesn't mean I don't go back ever again. It just means I go back the next day. Just pick it up the next day. And here's the thing. The goal of the Word, the primary goal of the Word, is not to inform you. It's to transform you. We really have to understand this. Because too often we seek the information of the word and not the transformation of the word. Information is mind-based. We want to fill our mind with information. There's, believe me, there's some great information. I'm, in, I'm a professor in a Bible college. I understand the information of the word. I'm not against the information. But information does not have the power to transform. Only Jesus has that power. The number one goal of you being in the Word consistently over time is for transformation, not information. So here are the three levels that I, these are my levels when it comes to the Word. Number one is transformation. That's, that's the number one thing you need to be going to the Word for is Transformation. Because as you read the Word for transformation purposes, it doesn't matter if you understand it completely. This is the number one, at least people tell me, it's the number one reason I hear from people why they stopped reading the Word. They'll come up to me and say, hey, you know, I've got this stuff going on in my life, I'm struggling in this area, whatever it may be. And at some point I'm going to ask, you know, how much time are you spending in the Word? Well... I used to, or I didn't, or I stopped, whatever. And then I'll ask, okay, well, why? Why, why, did you, why are you not consistently in the Word over time? Well, I don't get anything out of it. Okay, what are you looking for? And then they're like, well, um, well, you know, I hear Pastor Jim on Sunday. I don't get anything like that when I go read the Word. Or I read books by Dr. Tony Evans, and I don't get anything like that when I get, oh, okay, so you're looking for the information of the Word. Uh, okay, well, what if the primary goal of the Bible is not to inform you, but to transform you? Uh, what does that mean? 
That means you don't have to know all the theology in order for the Word of God to transform your life. I don't need to be an organic chemist for a pill to bring healing to my lungs. Now, is it important to know the information of the Word? Sure it is. Absolutely. Doctrine are important. However, what's more important is that your life's transformed. I know a lot of people who know a lot of information about the Word whose lives are anything but transformed. And they're writing books all over the place. You probably should stay away from them. I met a lot of people in seminary. Not this one, but I went to a seminary a long time ago before I came here. And I met a lot of people who knew a lot of theology whose lives were a mess. Information does not have the power to transform. Only Jesus does. Here's the thing. If you put a whole bunch of theological information into a mind that has not been transformed, that is sick with sin sickness, what's that mind going to do? It's going to distort the word. You know anybody out there who's got some distorted word going on? They're like everywhere. The last thing you want is to distort the word. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. The enemy distorted the word. And they fell for the trap. This is why you have to have a focus on transformation because as the word gets in you, it goes after this in a transformation sense. It begins to, and this is what the rest of that verse in Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit. It divides between what is true the righteousness of God in us and what is a lie that we believe about ourselves, about others, about life, that I'm not worthy. It divides between those two and then reveals what is the truth. Because as it finishes in that, in that verse, word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a revealer of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As you get the word in you, as you read the word, it begins to read you. And it begins to reveal these lies. Really what those little X's are, are lies you believe. About yourself, about others, about your past. Anybody ever deal with your past before? Like every day? As you get into the word, the word begins to bring this to the forefront. And reveal the thoughts and intents of the heart. This is another reason people tend to get out of the Word is because as you get into the Word, it starts getting into you and it starts meddling. It starts messing with stuff. It's like, oh, I just, I'm just looking for theology, man. I don't want to, don't mess with my life. But God wants to mess with your life. You need your life messed with. I need my life messed with. Because there's mess in my life that I need to get out that I don't even know is there. I'm not a big fortune cookie guy, but I got a fortune cookie like 30 years ago. I've never forgotten before. I opened it up and it said this. It said, nothing is obvious to the uninformed. Like, whoa. That's like wisdom right there. What? Nothing is obvious to the uninformed. There's a whole bunch of stuff in here that's obvious to God, but I'm extremely uninformed when it comes to what that is. And I need 
revelation. I need God to reveal what's in me that I am uninformed about because it is not obvious by any stretch of the imagination. It's blatantly obvious to my wife, but to me, I'm oblivious. And I need God to say, hey, uh, yo, we need that. And this is why the gospel is so important. If I'm drawing my identity from anything other than the gospel, really the only other identity we draw from is a performance identity. If I'm drawing my identity from a performance mentality, I cannot handle this revelation. Because when God brings something to the surface that says, hey bro, (laughs) you got this in you, we got to get it out, I don't want to deal with it because now it becomes a commentary on my worth rather than the gospel. This is why the gospel is so important. You have to understand that your worth is in Jesus. It's not in your past. It's not in your present. It's not in what you've done. It's not in what other people have done to you. It's not in what others have said about you. It's not in what you say about yourself. It's in Jesus. And until we get to that point where we're fully grounded, we can't handle this. We struggle with revelation, with God saying, hey, there's this issue in you. I want to get it out. Because as soon as that issue comes up, we immediately feel condemnation, guilt, and shame. And we run. And this is why people get back out of the Word. Because the Word starts getting into them, messing with stuff, and they have a performance mentality, and they're like, ah, I don't want to know I'm a loser. How would you want to know that you're righteous? So number one is is transformation. Number two is information. Now this is where as the Lord begins to heal this sin sickness, he clears up our thinking. This is where we start getting information. And then finally, number three is revelation. That's what everybody wants right there. You want some revelation out of the word. You want some revelation out of the Word? Get some transformation out of the Word. And then allow the Lord to bring in some information. Then the Holy Spirit will bring in revelation. In order to get revelation out of the Word, the Lord needs to allow you, or no, you need to allow the Lord to bring some revelation about you. I need to allow the Lord to bring some revelation about me. Because until we get to a point where we're experiencing healing in this, Walking in this, and I'm not talking about perfection. Please don't hear me. I'm not saying perfection. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying progress. I should be a little further along today than I was yesterday, and I should be doing something intentional today to set myself up to be further along tomorrow than I was today. If you're not seeing progress over time, you're not experiencing transformation. And don't take that as condemnation. Just take that as, oh, I just need to get back in the Word. What the world needs to see today is a transformed church, not an informed one. We got a lot of informed Christians. We need transformed Christians who can go out and be agents of transformation in their community, can be agents of transformation in the world and experience Jesus, not just hear about Jesus. Jesus. 
I want to end with uh, a concept that I learned about a couple years ago when I was doing a thesis for, for my master's. It's called Lexio Divina. It is an ancient practice of spiritual reading of the Word of God. Not information reading, spiritual reading. When I started reading about this, I'm like, wow, this has been around for like ever. The monks used to do this back in the 500s, like that long ago. Martin Luther, the great reformer, promoted reading of the word in this type of format. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, promoted Lexio Divina. It's been around forever, and it's just been lost in our current Western context. But it is a what's called a spiritual reading of the word, not an informational reading of the word. And in just the last few minutes, I want to encourage you to really think about this format. Uh, it has really revolutionized the way I read the word of God. And it has really accelerated, for me, the transformation process. So Lexio Divina has four components. Component number one is contemplatively reading the Word. It's, it's reading it not for the sake of reading it, but for reading it for the sake of really experiencing it. So instead of just reading through a passage or, you know, I read through a chapter or whatever, it's really slowing down. It's not, it, there's no goal in here, I need to read, you know, 15 pages or three chapters, whatever. No, there's nothing in that when it comes to Lexio Divina. Sometimes it's just a simple verse. And you begin to read through that. And, and this takes some time. It's not just, oh, I read it, you know, hey, that's cool. No, you read it, and then you begin to just meditate on this verse. And just let it marinate in your mind. And just sit there with the Lord and let this marinate. I was doing this uh, a couple weeks ago with a verse uh, out of Proverbs. And I, I didn't intentionally choose this verse. It ended up being very much revelatory for me. Um, but the verse says that the fear of man is a snare, but those who trust in the Lord will be safe. Very simple verse. So I just sat there, and I just let that run through my head. And I just said it over. The fear of man is a snare. Those who trust in the Lord are safe. And I, and I just sat there, and I just really just thought, contemplated on that. That's that first part. Next is reflecting on that. Allow the Holy Spirit to begin to move in just, you know, a lot of times when we're meditating, we've got all these thoughts that come to our head, and we're like, oh, I'm so distracted. But what I've discovered is sometimes when I'm meditating on Scripture, a thought will come to my mind, maybe, and usually it's something out of my past. I'm like, oh, why is that coming up again? Well, the reason it's coming up is because it actually relates to what I'm meditating on. And it has some sort of root here. And oftentimes, I find for me that I don't often connect those two. I think it's a distraction when in reality it's the Holy Spirit saying, hmm, you're thinking about the fear of man. You remember this happening in your life? You remember when 
this happened and how you felt and what you thought about and how that actually came up the other day in this conversation. I'm like, whoa. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit starts connecting dots of how all of a sudden this verse is becoming real to me, not just informational. And now I'm starting to, well, okay, wait a minute. Now I'm going way past just, I understand the information of the theology behind the fear of man versus the fear of the Lord. So this is just really reflecting on it and allowing the Holy Spirit to begin to make these connections. Third is responding. What is your, okay, how am I, now what do I do with this? What do I do with this? Lord, give me wisdom on this. And how is this actually affecting my life more than I realized? The fear of man, I know for me, has a lot of influence sometimes in my conversations. A lot of times just in my head, it may not necessarily dictate my actions, but a lot of times I let that fear begin to create a scenario about somebody that is not true. Let me give you a perfect example. I was bullied a lot when I was a kid in high school, and, and I developed a knee-jerk response to that. I became very much an introvert. And I know it's, it's so funny. My mom, who lives with me now, she's actually still recovering. She fell and broke her hip. But she's still recovering. But, you know, when she sees me up here, she's like, who are you? Because she knew me in my introvert days. She's like, I, What? Who is that guy? Because when I was a kid, you can get me to say two words. And the reason I was so introverted was because I was so bullied that I reverted to that as a self-preservation, self-protection. Well, about a month or so ago, probably a little longer than that, I remember, you know, I'm kind of in this contemplative prayer circumstance, and the Holy Spirit brought up a circumstance in my life I was at the gym the other day, or the, you know, at that, he said, hey, you're at the gym the other day, and you met somebody new, and you responded to them like they used to be one of the bullies. I'm like, what? I had to really stop and think, holy cow, you're right. Of course, God's right, but you know what I mean. I'm like, and he said, when you responded that way, they kind of pulled back and kind of, you know, kind of give you a weird look. And that just validated that lie that you believed that they were one of the bullies. So the problem wasn't that they were a bully. The problem was you treated them like a bully, and then they acted that way, and it validated your lie. Like, what in the world? I thought I was healed. What is wrong with me? But I thought, wow, I had no idea that that thing that happened so many years ago is still, <laughs> still dealing with me. What's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm human. And I'm allowing this lie to dictate my actions rather than the truth of the gospel. That's what transformation is all about. It's dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and recognizing that I'm believing a lie to the point where it's informing, not just informing, but dictating my actions rather than the gospel. Now, God didn't do that to condemn me over it. He said, hey, let's work on this. There's no reason for you to respond to people like that because they're not bullies. You're not being bullied. 
you're just believing a lie. That's that reflecting part. And then finally, there's the resting. And this is really the, the height of Lexio Divina, is resting not in just the revelation, but in the revealer. My goal is not just to get a revelation. My goal is just to be in God's presence. My goal is to just let go of everything and just enjoy God for who He is. Not what He can do, but who He is. And just bask. Have you ever been with somebody and you're just like, you know, I just love being in your presence. I don't care if we talk at all. You don't have to talk. You just, man, I just love hanging out. Getting to the point where we just love hanging out with Jesus. Just hanging out in his presence. Lexio Divina is a means of experiencing the word of God and experiencing the God of the word. So I encourage you to give that a try. This is not a formula, okay? Don't think, well, do I have to do it? It's not a formula. Don't, don't look at it as a formula. Look at it as a way to experience God and his transforming presence. You know, we get so quick, man, I got to get through this and I got to do that. This really, it's a slowing down and marinating, not just in the word, but in the God of the word. Because we need a church right now that is salt and light. We need a church that is walking in the victory. We need a church that is a response to the culture, not a reflection of the culture. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about this square building. I'm not talking about the 501c3 institution. I'm talking about you and me. We are the church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. Ekklesia means the called out ones. That's you and me. There is no indication, there's no concept of institution in the New Testament because it never existed. The church didn't become an institution until the 300s when Constantine became a Christian and made it the state religion. And all of a sudden it became an institution. Before then it was a movement. And it's meant to be a movement, a people movement, by which the world is transformed. And we get to be part of that. Not just as agents, but as participants. We get to experience the movement, and then we get to share the movement. That's what Christianity is all about. So let's stand. So I want to encourage you tonight to make a commitment to allow God to transform your life. Not just inform your life, but transform your life. And allow the Lord to position you to be salt and light, to be a response, not a reflection. And again, I, I cannot encourage you enough to recognize that your identity is in the gospel. You can't go through transformation unless you're drawing your identity from the gospel. Now, you have to constantly remind yourself of that. It's not a perfect perfection aspect, but it's re remembering when this stuff comes up, going, oh, man, I'm, no, I'm rejecting that guilt, shame, and condemnation because it has no commentary on my worth. My worth is in the gospel. And at that point, now you're ready to be transformed and let go of whatever it is that the Lord brings to your mind. So let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you for
just for who you are. Lord, I thank you for these people tonight, Lord. I just pray right now in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would just tug on their heart. You would just put that desire in them just to be with you, to spend time not just in your word but in your presence. And allow that presence, allow your word to not just inform them, but to transform them. And Lord, when you begin that transformation process, when you reveal the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Lord, that you would remind them that their identity is not in their performance, it's in the gospel. Lord, I pray right now that each and every person, a year from now, would be transformed in a way that they can look back and go, wow, look what the Lord has done in my life. And that would be the testimony that they would share with others and say, look, this is what the Lord has done in my life. This is what the Lord can do in your life. Lord, I thank you. Lord, we just love you so much. And Father, I just pray in all of this, let no person, no entity, no organization, no event, no one and nothing gets glory but Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Come on, give the Lord a hand tonight.